looking at the miracles in the book of John, and that through Easter we were looking at the Gospels. And then finally, with Pentecost and uh, before that Ascension, we looked at Acts 2, and then we moved to Revelation 1. Uh, and we've been looking at the writings of John primarily in, in this time. And the great theme that I hope you're seeing, and uh, I hope this is a, it's kind of like a good long soaking rain or a wonderful aged meat process of marinating that, that John writes about darkness and light, blindness and sight. He, he, is a, he is a writer, and this is his meta theme throughout his gospel, throughout his writings in Revelation and in the epistle here. And so when we, when we come to 1 John, and we see this language about light and darkness, he makes some startling claims that uh, in my own life and uh, what I've heard from people who ask me questions, you know, at first you read them and you say, well, wait, if John's saying this, am I really even a believer? If you've never encountered that, you probably weren't reading First John in any sort of seriousness. But what John has said in this passage we just heard read today is, whoever, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. You read that and you're like, wait a second. I know that I don't keep his commandments. I must be a liar. And, and this is an easy trap to fall into. But if you do not know the purpose for which John is writing, you will be falsely condemned and accused by the enemy through the writing of John, and it is just plainly uh, not holding what he says in context. So we're going to do some mighty wrestling with the text today, and I hope that you will be confident that, uh, not to give anyone false assurance, but rather that you will be confident if you know that you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, you have an internal confirming witness from the Holy Spirit that is not your imagination, as well as a life of seeking to pursue God and keep his commandments, that you don't get tripped up when you hear one sentence, such as, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. What John is doing in this epistle is he's combating heresy. And we, we talked about this last week and, and a little bit in, in what he was doing in, in Revelation. In Revelation, he is extolling the virtues of Jesus Christ so that the bride would be wooed back into faith, that she would be strengthened in the midst of a coming persecution. And in this book, likewise, he is extolling the virtues of God's salvation and those who he's brought out of darkness and into light, and in that also cutting off the tentacles of darkness that are trying to come in and, and choke out the life in this church, in these churches that he's writing to. So we looked last week at how John is going after some heresies, such as uh, whether, whether or not the father co-suffered with the son, or whether the son was really God, maybe Jesus Christ just received uh, deity or, or assumed divinity through his baptism, things like this. And in this chapter, if you don't understand that, that John is going after a certain set of heresies, a certain set of doctrines which are contra Christ, then you will not understand what he's talking about. 
later in the book when we uh, next week when we get into him discussing the Antichrist, uh, we'll also have to deal with some other issues that have surrounded themselves around that word. But simply put, John is defending apostolic Christology, or that is the doctrines of the apostles that uh, that concern Jesus Christ as being the Messiah and God uh, in humanity. And so. In this chapter, John is not coming after you, weak Christians, who still sin. Uh, All of us are those type of Christians. There are no other types of Christians. There are only Christians who still sin, which is why we saw last week that he, uh, over and over again, in the midst of writing about sinning, he says, if you do sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Likewise, he reiterates those themes in this chapter. So as we go through this chapter, we're going to look at these six elements. First, John is is giving a description of Christ's advocacy, that is his, his role, what he's doing right now at the right hand of the Father for you and for me. The book of Hebrews plainly states that Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession. Likewise, John here also gives a hint to the work of Christ now at the right hand of the Father. We're going to look at what John says is God's solution for the problem of evil in the world today, Uh, not just the problem of the origin of evil, but the solution that God has for human suffering and evil. We're going to look finally, or next at John's explanation of how we should be walking. And the reason I use that phrase walking is it's a metaphor to describe a style of life, a way of life. Not every single action is the current new indication of your heart toward the Lord. And so we talk about these things in walking. Paul especially makes use of that phrase. We're going to look at this poem that John has. Uh, John is a great writer, and he here has a masterful poem, which uh, we're going to see another example of chiastic structures. If you remember, chiastic structures are the hamburger, the bun, and the meat, and the other bun. It's like a, or you could think of it as a taco, a taste of Mexico here. You got the shell, you got the meat, and then the other shell. It's it's a system of language in which uh, a particular parallelism or a connecting the dots is uh, is being made, and it's it's a it's John's way here of explaining to you some of the dynamics at work, uh, and so he's writing in this structure to give flourish, to give uh, uh, elaboration to to these ideas. We're going to look at what John says is the um, commandments to love your brothers, which is the centerpiece of this section of this chapter. And then finally, we're going to look at the his uh, final uh, injunction for us to turn away from loving of the world. This is also, not only are we busy as Christians, as I was mentioning early, earlier, but we also have an, a very difficult time uh, in our culture, distinguishing things that we should not be associated with in Christian uh, in Christianity, I at all I, at no point believe that God uh, considers sin to be smoking, drinking, etc. Uh, although those can become sins uh, if you use them improperly, but I do maintain that there are things that Christians should not participate in, and that that you have to be on guard for your love of the world and the things of the world. And that's why John here is then commanding, after laying out all of these 
statements that saying that you have been redeemed, you have been washed, you have been brought out of darkness, you've been brought into light, and yet he still gives commands. Um, so with that, let's get started. First, the chapter opens with John explaining the purpose of his writing, and he writes explicitly so that we would not sin. Now, one of the things that I think is very typical for especially young believers is to to read a verse in the Bible, especially the epistles, to see some sort of uh, moral injunction or command, and then turn around and use that as an indication of the world's unrighteousness. What John here is saying is, I am writing to his to his children. He's writing to his spiritual children, those who are already Christians. He says, my children, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So first of all, these children have, these, these believers have already been put into a relationship with the apostle through the presentation of the gospel and the apostle's uh, ministry that he's been doing at this church. So first of all, we understand immediately that children of God, or children of the church, if you will, children of apostles, poetically speaking, are not made by the cessation of sin. You do not cease sinning in order to become a Christian. That is the inversion of the principle of our faith, which is God has redeemed us. The story of the Old Covenant is God chose Israel apart from anything that Israel had done. In fact, She wasn't even a nation, and God raised her up and chose her to be his special people, not not having anything to do with the significance that is of Israel. Likewise, New Testament election or, or New Covenant election is the exact same thing. You were chosen by God and made a child of God through his adopting you without respect to any of your glory, worth, or righteousness. So John here is addressing children. There is already a relationship before he begins to instruct. And so he goes on to say, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here is a bedrock foundation for the rest of the text. We are already considered children. And then he goes on to say, we should not be sinning. That's why I'm writing to you. So the gospel or the epistle here is being designated as a source of grace to the believers. And then the next phrase is, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus here is the advocate who is mentioned as being with the Father, not only in his special location at the right hand of God, but also in his role and relationship that is the sonship that Jesus Christ has with the Father. So Jesus is positionally near the Father and is able to make an advocacy or an appeal on our behalf, but also Because of his relationship to the Father, he is, as it were, an elder brother for the sons and daughters of God who are still being revealed. And so here, John is extolling the virtue and position of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ here wants to be your advocate. That is his role. That is his function. That is one of the descriptions of what he's doing at the right hand as we've been looking at through Ascension. And so immediately we see that God is, again, not only has he adopted us, but he also has set in place his son to be our advocate, that is our helper, as we continue to go about this Christian walk. 
John then goes on uh, to to say that the um, that what Jesus has done through his incarnation is not only positionally as as the elder brother, but also as a sign of mankind as a whole. Jesus Christ, through his incarnation, takes on humanity so that he would be, as the book of Hebrews makes plain, an eligible high priest, right? It, how, it, what does it say concerning his incarnation? He had to be made like his brothers. And so here, Jesus is shown as an advocate at the right hand of the Father and one who knows our frailty, knows our weakness, and because we're related to him through the adoption that God has achieved and made possible, we have a true advocate. The Father, therefore, when he looks at us, he looks at us through Christ and doesn't regard us to our failures and sins as if we were not his children, but rather looks at us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So John, after explaining the advocacy that we have with the Father, we're not on this alone. We're not in this without a uh, you know, coach in our corner, if you will. Actually, he's the boxer in this analogy. But verse 2, he goes on to explain what Jesus Christ has done. And so, to the problem of sin and death in the world, God offers up only one solution, and that is the propitiation through the death of his son. Now, propitiation, is that's a really big word, and all it means is, is that someone is, is righteously angry toward you, and a propitiation is the thing which resolves the anger, the tension, the, the, the distance, um, the exclusion, and the lack of fellowship. The propitiation that John says for our sins is that, is that is Jesus Christ and his death in our place. That is the only solution that God has offered up to the problem of human suffering and sin and evil in the world. There are no other alternatives. Uh, you, you can go ahead and rip off the coexist sticker from the back of your car all religions are not equally valid. None of them attempt to make a restitution or a propitiation for all of humanity's problems. In every single religion, each of them prescribe a spirituality that is either community-based or individually based, such as in Buddhism, it is your job as a Buddhist to uh, achieve nirvana through the detaching of your person from all relational desires to other humans, as well as all materialistic claims, that is the renunciation of your property, the detachment from goals. Uh, you just be, you kind of move to this state of spiritual purity by detaching from the physical world. In Islam, it is required for you to submit to Allah's commands in order that you would achieve peace with Allah. And likewise, uh, the solution for humanity is that every single person in the world must submit. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like a very hard goal to get to. In Christianity, however, the problem for our sins and the sins of the whole world is nothing other than the death of Jesus Christ and his pure sacrifice that he has made. That's what John's saying. The magnanimity of that, or the, the magnitude of that, is unthinkable. John is saying, in the light of all the problems that the churches are facing, all of the problems of Rome and the other nations that are running around on the earth, every sin that they have been doing, all of it 
is being resolved and is and has a solution in Jesus. Now, John is not obviously saying that Jesus' death is effective for all those who are sinners in the world, those who do not come and and hear his word and believe in God's truth. They, they acknowledge the light that they have, so to speak. They're not able to participate in this life that Jesus makes possible, but John is saying that there is a free offer, a free extension of salvation to every sin in the world. Do we actually believe that? Do do we honestly believe that Jesus Christ and his gospel is the solution to human suffering and evil? Or do we need military campaigns? Do we need taxation? Do we need self-sacrifice, personal sacrifice? Do we need new invention? Do we need new technology? Do we need more education to prevent crime and murder in the inner cities? Every solution that man has attempted to come up with has fallen short, and John the Apostle here says that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. He's the only solution that God offers up. His death is the removal of our guilt and condemnation, but not always, or not just ours, but also the whole world. Everything that is wrong in the world, all sin, greed, corruption, envy, strife, malice, factions, wars, all of them are resolved through Jesus Christ. But we look today at modern man, we look for other solutions. It's, it's called of us as believers to rest in that. To believe that, not just for the problems of the whole world, but also the problems that we see in our of ourselves. So John moves on after saying Jesus Christ is our advocate. He's not just our advocate, but he's also the solution to our sin, the problem of our sin. He, he resolves. And then he moves on to explain the difference between those who are truly God's children and those who merely claim to be God's children. What's been happening in the churches at this point in history, this is only a few years, uh, maybe 10, 10 or 20, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, the gospel has gone out into all of what we call antiquity, or that is the Mesopotamian region that was culturally Greek Hellenistic and politically probably conquered by Rome. The gospel has gone into all the world, as it were. Uh, Israel has received the gospel as well as it's gone past her borders. And at this point, there are other doctrines coming in trying to infect the church. You can think of it like an octopus. They all have the, it's the work of the enemy, but there are many tentacles and they all look different. Here, uh, last chapter, we dealt with those who denied Jesus being God and those who also advocated that that God is just a uh, form or a mode. You see the Father at one point, you see the Son at another point, you see the Holy Spirit at another point still. And here, John is now beginning to combat the Gnostics and those who would be antinomian. John addresses how we're going to know whether we are truly Christians and whether those who claim to be believers actually are Christians. How do you know if someone is a Christian and there's not like some thing you can look at their wrist or like the tag on the back of their shirt? It, there's no visible external man-made identification for Christianity or those who actually are sons and daughters of God, but rather John says you can see by their fruits. Verse uh, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This verse must be understood, of course, in the light of the opening of the chapter. He's writing to children who are already 
those who are in the church. Keeping God's commandments is not at all sinlessness. And this is where, especially young believers, we get caught up sometimes. We think, oh, I'm, I know for a fact that I was jealous in my heart or that I lusted in my heart or whatever. In the last few days, if, if verse 3 through 6 are true, then I must not be a Christian. Not so. Uh, and we'll see that very clearly. Keeping God's commandments is not sinless perfection, but rather it is an identification of one's overall walk with the Lord. That is, you can't just look at your last five minutes and let your heart stand or fall based on your personal performance in that day. That's not what John is advocating. John is uh, primarily just addressing two types of heresies. Uh, Their groups are called the Gnostics, and then later would come the Antinomians, who advocate that we do not need to keep God's laws, but rather we just need to be spiritual. We just need to attain to a secret spiritual knowledge. This is seen today in uh, the self-help culture, the um, personal betterment culture. Uh, It's it's seen in, in ways that we uh, really don't really have a a firm grasp on, but the ideas behind Gnosticism kind of infect many dimensions of our culture, Uh, not just Christian culture, mostly mostly the world. Uh, Likewise, there also is another side of this that is uh, a, a heresy, if you will, in the church today that that preaches, you know, you don't need to worry about sin there's grace for everything. You can live however you want because there's always going to be, God's grace is never going to run out on you. Uh, You know, we sing a song here that I love and is true for believers that God's love never fails, it never gives up, and it never runs out. And that is true for those who are pursuing God, those who have been identified as Christians. But for those who hate God and do not wish to follow his laws, God has no grace uh, in uh, in the way that he has grace for believers. And so we see this uh, tendency in the church today, what you might call hyper-grace, or at worst, antinomianism, which says it doesn't matter if you live a homosexual lifestyle, God, ha- there's grace for that. It doesn't matter if you beat your wife and children, there's grace for that. It doesn't matter if you lust after a, a member of the opposite sex and you know go after pornography or drugs or greed or pride or, or self-righteousness, any of those things which you want to name as sins. It doesn't matter if you do those because there's always grace for that. That is a heresy, and that is destructive and wars against your soul. What John here is saying is not that you are sinless, in your keeping of God's commands, but rather that you are pursuing God's commands. Over and over again, the psalmist says, God, incline my heart to your ear. Open up my ear to receive your commands. Help me to seek after them. This at, John is not at all saying to be a believer, to know that you're a believer, you must be sinless. He does say that you will stop sinning in the larger sense that you won't just go after your life in your ways, but rather you'll submit to God's ways. And so, following Christ, following God's commands, are not. it's not an absolute thing. It's not as if we are attempting to now having been, as Paul says in Galatians, having been justified by faith, we are now trying to be perfected by keeping of the law. That's not at all here. What John is doing is he's helping the church see which teachers are good and which are bad. 
We see that in Revelation 2 through 3. One of the commendations for the church is that they reject those who are claimed to be pastors and are not, or apostles and are not. And so here, we have to do battle in the doctrines that we hear. There are people that you may hear throughout your week. I'm not sure which streams you try to, to gather from, but there are, there are preachers on radio, on the internet, etc., who teach these sorts of doctrines, and you need to be on guard for them. You need to be aware that anyone who says that you do not have to follow God's word or God's ways, that person is a false teacher. You need to be armed by that. That's why John is writing this letter. That's what he says in his poem that uh, that is the purpose, and we're going to look at that here in a second. Uh, He goes on to say in verses four through six, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You know that John is speaking in a generality because for the entire history of the church, the majority of faithful Christians who live godly way, uh, uh, in a godly way have not been raising the dead. Now, if, if verse 6 is to be true, we know that we are Christians or we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I don't know about you, but it's been a very long time infinity since I've raised someone from the dead. If this is true, and John is saying that only those who walk in exactly the same way in which Christ walked are to be identified as Christians, then there is no hope for the world. Because that is not happening in but a few small sections of the body. What I think John is getting at here is he's saying this is your overall trend. As we saw last week, whoever has his hope that he will be like Jesus when Jesus is, is returning at the end of the age, that will be like him when we see him, whoever has this hope is purifying himself. I think that's what John is getting at in this, in this letter. He's saying that you should be walking in the purity and power of Jesus, and that should be your goal. That should be your your aim. Not that you already have attained it, as Paul, to borrow a phrase from Paul. So just as we saw last week that everyone who has the hope of becoming like Christ is purifying themselves, so also anyone who ha- who claims to have spiritual revelation ought to be walking like Jesus. This again comes back to our culture. There are many Many people, young people especially, who say, I'm spiritual, I'm, I'm a believer in God, yet they walk as a law unto themselves, doing whatever they wish to do, not walking in accordance with God's word. And so we know that they, are not, they do not have true spiritual revelation if they aren't seeking to, to follow after God's commands. Now, this, of course, isn't very politically correct, and I don't think you should go around and just declare to people, you know, according to 1 John 2, I know that you are actually a child of darkness. Uh, I think you should be more apologetic than that. But for us, for those who would be uh, following after God, how are we to know that, that other religions, other faiths, people who seem to live good lives are still actually in darkness? According to these verses, if they're not following after God's will, that is to believe in Jesus Christ, the one who he sent, and also walking according to God's ways, his commandments and precepts, as explained through his word, then we know they are not children of the light, though they claim to have a good life. And so this is exclusionary, and it is, um, 
it it is just clear he says that whoever he whoever says that he abides in him or that he knows God ought to walk in the same way. So how do we know that John is not demanding perfectionism? Because when you read this book as a young believer, it is very hard to understand what what John is saying. How do we know? It's my opinion that he's not demanding perfectionism here in these verses, that he's speaking of a general way of life, but how do we know that he is? How can we convince ourselves by the word of God that John here is not saying that anyone who commits any tiny sin is actually an unbeliever, but rather he's going after those who are saying you don't even need to follow God's law. I think we know plainly by what he says in these in this poem. Um, now, if you remember the chiastic structure, of course, it's our hamburger analogy. Uh, most of the time, chiastic structures are, are A, B, C, B, A. It's kind of a, a, a cookie or a wafer or a hamburger, if you will. There's a layer, it, it goes down, and then it comes back out, right? Uh, here, this parallelism is, it is chiastic, although it is a little different. It's more like A, B, C, A, B, C. Now, I want you to, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can go ahead and pull them out. They'll be on, uh, the verses will be here. But this parallel structure is important to understand because of what it says concerning who John is writing to and why he's writing, so that we understand he is writing to us so that we would not sin and that we are, though we don't keep God's commandments perfectly, we are those who are keeping God's commandments. The, the order in this is children, fathers, young men, and he repeats this theme uh, uh, one time. He, he says it, and then he repeats it. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Okay, already God, uh, God has demonstrated these people as having their sins forgiven for his own glory, for his own uh prestige on the earth. It says that their sins are forgiven for what? Not for their eternal salvation, but rather for God's glory or his name's sake. He then goes on to say, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He's saying to to them that they know Jesus Christ. They do have true knowledge, right? He goes on to say, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then he goes and repeats this theme, there was children, fathers, young men, that's A, B, and C. And then he begins again, I write to you children because you know the father, making a connection to verse 13 with the fathers uh, who know the one who is from the beginning. Do you see the interplay of these, uh, these phrases and words? So he addresses children, fathers, young men, and then he goes and repeats some of the things that he said about the particular group to the other groups. Now, this is getting a little muddy, but he's intentionally creating an um, atmosphere of words. It's an aroma of terms, if you will. He continues again, verse 14, I write to you fathers. He repeats the exact same phrase, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. What John is saying here, obviously, is that the children are members of the church. It's the church as a collective. Fathers then would be pastors and young men would probably be elders or deacons. That analogy is pretty clear. And so what he's doing is he's describing and commending them for their spiritual successes 
that have been revealed through the grace of God so that they have turned away from sin, they've turned away from darkness, and they've overcome the evil one. They do know Jesus Christ, and they have a faithful, reliable connection to God. How can, if John is demanding perfection in verse 4, says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, then go on to say in verse 13, to the fathers that you know him. If also at the same time demanding perfection, and at the same time extolling the glory of Jesus Christ as being an advocate, and one who is still fighting for them. He cannot be doing that. It doesn't work. If John says, you have to be perfect to know God, and then goes on and says, we have an advocate, Jesus in the earlier chapter will forgive you if you confess your sins, and that he is the propitiation for your sins, and then go on to say, you know him, it's not logically consistent for all of those three things to be true. He cannot be simultaneously saying that anyone who is not perfected does not know God, and also, here's a, a forgiveness, here's a propitiation, here's an advocate, and likewise saying, you know him. Those, two, those last two clauses are contradictory. If we were already perfected, why would John be extolling the beauty of Jesus in being our advocate? we would have no need. So clearly, John is not demanding perfection, and that is vital for you young believers to understand. There was a time in my life where I seriously, strongly doubted that I was a believer because of my ongoing sin and wrongly reading 1 John. Not to say that, that 1 John has any deficiency, but rather that I was being foolish. First John is written, he says in verse 12, writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. The very fact that you are participating in this letter means very strongly that you already have the relationship. And then finally, going on to say that there still is an advocate, there still is a propitiation, Jesus Christ still will forgive you. And in this place, a, a mighty weight is removed. You have just, by learning that, by holding on to that, by remembering that in the moments of your weakness, in the moments of sin and repentance, you have just disarmed the evil one of his most powerful tool that you would doubt your salvation. Now, that being said, I do want to say strongly that John here is saying, but if you do not at all seek to follow God's word, do not consider yourself to have any knowledge of God. He goes on to say, uh, he gives two more indications in this chapter that that is of the case. So, <clears throat> by mentioning these things, uh, John is is giving us the codex or the uh, the decryption key, if you will, to the meaning of the book. He's saying, "Here's an advocate. Here's a propitiation for your sins. Here is one who will forgive you when you confess." And then he's saying, "Here are the identification points. How do you know you're actually a believer?" So let's, we're going to go back here in a second and go to John's command of brotherly love. He gives them a new commandment. It's not really new, but rather old, speaking of the fact that God's commands are always uh, in force. The great commandment being to love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, mind, strength, and also the second like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. John here connects it to brothers, but it's, it is the second great commandment. 
In one sense, it's not a new commandment, but rather an old one. And it is new in the sense that it's able to be done this time. John here is saying that it is a new commandment in, in a very real way, in that the first time it was given, it wasn't able to be done by those who heard as being done by, from the heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's new in the sense that it's now in force and it's now able to be done of course, through God's grace. And again, John picks up this metaphor of light and darkness. This is, as you remember, the super theme of John's writing. Darkness, light, uh, those who are blind, those who can see. And he goes on to describe those who are not believers and yet are believers. In verse 8, he says, at the same time, it's a new commandment. In verse 9, he goes on to say, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He's giving you a test to see if you are truly a child of God. Now, does this mean that we have perfect fellowship with brothers and there's never any strife? No, of course not. We know that intuitively. That John is not saying that if you ever get into an argument with a brother that you are in darkness. He's saying, do you hate your brother? Have you moved past the point of having grace for someone else? Have you moved past the point of having any hope that they will ever change? If, if you hate your brother, if you act in hate, respond in hate, think in hate, then you are in darkness. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Plainly, there is the theme of darkness and blindness. If you are beginning to have difficulty with your brother, by all means, ask for God's grace and forgiveness, and also pray that they would be blessed and restored and brought into the truth. It is not acceptable for you as a believer to go into a place in your life where you let other Christians, because of their sin or because of yours, uh, drift further and further away from you and never forgive them, never have any sort of charity in your heart to them. It, that's It's not, according to John, it's not in step with your claims of being a believer. Again, you don't love your brother to be saved. It's an indication of your internal state. So finally, John calls us once again to turn away from the world. Here he does issue an injunction or a command. He says, do not love the world. Uh, rather, in this passage about brotherly love, he says, if you do love your brother, you're in the light. In verse 15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And then he gives an indicative or an indication. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but it is from the world. And then here again in verse 17, there's this sense of language uh, concerning light and darkness and visibility. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John in this book gives two or three indications. If you are seeking to do God's commandments, that's a good sign. If you love your brother, that's a good sign. If you hate the world, that's a very good sign. And yet at the same time, he says, if you do not at all want to keep God's commandments, that's a very scary sign. If you do not love your brother and you hate other people, you you wish for their destruction, you murder them in your heart, you slander them through gossip, that's a very, very bad sign. And then finally, if you find yourself attracted to the things of the world, the fame, the, the money, the greed, the popularity, 
the power that goes along with certain forms of vocations or offices. If you love those things, if you're running toward those things, that's a very scary sign. John here is giving a system of identification. How do you test yourself? We're commanded to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. How do we do it? First John 2 is an amazing uh, litmus test, or it's an amazing structure in which we can do it. These things are are given to us so that we would not be deceived either by ourselves or by those who would teach false doctrine or or those who would say all religions equally valid, all faiths equally applicable, all creeds equally commendable. This is not at all John saying that you need to do these things in order to be saved. He's saying if you think you're a Christian, if you are following God, and yet these things scream out and testify against you, then do not believe that you are on a good foundation. Again, John uses this light and sight system, saying that the world is passing away. Have you ever seen Back to the Future? When, when Marty starts to not exist because of the interplay of the world lines, all you physics geeks, what happens? He starts fading away. I think that's what John's saying here. He's saying that the world system is being destroyed by G- King Jesus, and it is passing away. It's becoming less and less visible, less and less here, less and less present, less and less real. It's moving towards destruction. And yet he says that those who do the commandments of God remain forever. And according to what we've been studying in other chapters and other prophets, they'll shine like the stars in the heavens. They will be the kingdom of priests to their God, etc., etc. John here gives us this test for faithfulness, and it's something that as a believer, you ought to examine yourself. Not to, to doubt your Christianity, not to doubt your faith, but rather to say, are there areas of my life which I yet need to submit to the Lordship of King Jesus? Or have I let these areas of my life slip? Have I kind of let the field overgrow, if it were, as it were? The test is, are we keeping God's commandments? Do we love our brothers? And do we hate the world? Yes, I say hate, because he says, whoever loves the world is not a knower of God or does not have the light of God in him. If you can say yes to all three, then you are surely a child of God. This is how you defeat the accusation of the enemy as you are persevering against your own sin and continuing to fight and be repentant. You can say, along with the voice of the Holy Spirit, yes, I know God. Yes, I am following God's commandments. I, I have love and, and, and deep admiration for the brothers, and I am increasingly hating the things of the world. That's how you know if you're a believer, not just because you're baptized, not just because you take communion, not just because you attend church. Those aren't at all enough, and, and they don't earn you anything. But rather, these things, if these are found to be true in you, you are a child of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask that you would guard our hearts from the the lack of care, the lack of tending to our lives that is so often the case. Lord, we ask you that you would remove the accusation of the enemy, but also, Lord, I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would shake from certainty any of those who have a false certainty, any of those who have deceived themselves and Uh, follow after you in attempting to justify themselves or follow after you because they think it's the right thing to do. Lord, I pray that you would give us great 
assurance concerning our salvation, that we would see the moments in our lives where you put your hand on us and brought us out of darkness and into light. We ask you, God, that you would confirm us by the voice of your Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen the weak hearts among us, that you would give us uh, a mighty uh, braver, bravery and and boldness concerning the things of your gospel, and that you would help us to know the truth of your word, and that we would never be deceived by false teachers or those who would say it's not necessary to follow after God or his ways. Lord, I pray that you would save us from the pluralistic uh, society that is all around us, that we would turn our ears uh, away from the voices that would claim that everything's equally valid, all people are equally uh, commendable for their religion. Lord, we pray that you would give us a graciousness in arguing and dealing with others concerning the truth of your gospel and the claims that your son Jesus has made. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace this week, that we would find ourselves thriving by the power of the Holy Spirit, confident and seeking to do good works. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.